The OnPulse podcast is produced by Abacus Data in partnership with Summa Strategies and Spark Advocacy. The show is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, so make sure to subscribe for the latest updates. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the seventh episode of the On Pulse podcast. Thanks for tuning in. As always, it justifies my paycheck. My name is Ihor Krabovic, head of operations at Abacus Data and research lead for On Pulse. On Pulse is a research collaboration between the polling company and partner agencies Summa Strategies and Spark Advocacy. It is built up around a tracking survey we've launched about the Ontario election where we take a deep dive into some of the campaign dynamics of how the public is reacting to the 2018 contest. You can find out more about that and posts on our latest polling and analysis at www.onpulse.ca. Today, we are joined by Alison Smith. She is the founder and publisher of Queen's Park Today, a subscription-based politics newsletter read by thousands of insiders working in and around the Ontario government. She also publishes BC Today, uh, British Columbia's only digital politics newsletter. Alison is a member of the Queen's Park Press Gallery, and more notably, of course, her greatest claim to fame is at guest number seven on the On Paul's podcast. Alison, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ihor. Thanks for having me. When you've had your fill of On Pulse, take a look at Queen's Park Today's election campaign package resource. It's a four-week subscription to the daily newsletter for people who do not need uh, Queen's Park coverage year-round, but are keeping an eagle eye on the Ontario election campaign. Details can be found on her Twitter feed. The handle is at Queen's Park Today. Today, uh, we are chatting all things media coverage. Most Ontarians these days, when we ask them about these things, report hearing mostly negative coverage of Kathleen Wynne, not much about Horvath, and mostly mixed things about Doug. Our latest fresher data points to point to some momentum towards more negative uh, coverage of Ford. This data is more about public sentiment and what news consumers are reading and seeking out than it is about objective assessment of how coverage is being conducted. But let's use it as a jumping off point anyway. Uh, the media has this function of holding the government to account. So naturally, there would be, given limited resources, strongest emphasis on the sitting government. When should this change, if at all? Has how has the uh, that evolved this campaign? Uh, when w- when should the media begin to give equal coverage or much greater coverage to the NDP? Um, we'll use that as a uh, jumping off point for Allison. Any thoughts? I actually think the coverage of the NDP has has flipped this week following the debate, which when we were recording uh, was three four days ago. Um, I think that Andrea Horvath's performance at the debate like had a lot of people impressed and now that the campaign's actually kicked off uh, we now have reporters on the NDP and the liberal buses uh, as many of your listeners will know Doug Ford doesn't have a is not doing a campaign bus but I think 
uh, Horvath having media really close to her at all times throughout this campaign is going to mean that she's going to get a lot more coverage than she has up till this point. Uh, especially notably, uh, the Liberal Party, and I think is what is traditional, is there's separate buses, right? So the Premier and her team are on one bus and the media would be on the other bus. But in Horvath's case, uh, which is, I think, can both be seen as like a friendly media move and also probably a cost-cutting um, measure, is having the media on the exact same bus as her. So they're actually all, you know, in the exact same space, in the exact same car, Um I mean, also, I guess another reason for that is that the media pool has shrunk over the past, you know, five, ten years. So there isn't actually that many reporters that are on these on these campaign buses. So mm -hmm. for that reason as well, you don't need, you know, 20, 40 seats. So that that could be another reason why they're sharing the sharing the space. But I think that, yeah, I think that we're going to start hearing a lot more about Horvath. We've seen her rising in the polls, the difference between her and uh what respondents are saying about her and Ford popularity wise is it's closing a bit. And I think we've seen the NDP in British Columbia in Alberta, you know, run campaigns and, and come out on top. So I think that although I, d I don't necessarily think for the chance of Horvath becoming the next premier are supremely high, I think that her, um, you know, maybe coming out ahead of Kathleen Wynne or, or gaining momentum throughout the popularity is a pretty likely narrative that we're going to we're going to keep hearing. Right. And and I imagine it, it um, you know, it's this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy or feedback ecosystem where uh, not only is she seen as a more credible or a better performer or a more credible candidate, uh, Clearly, the voters are to some degree disaffected and with the main two traditional options and are looking around, casting about, and as a result, a little bit more interested in what the NDP might have to say this time around. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that despite the fact that Horvath has been the Ontario NDP leader for a long time and has run, uh, you know, in other general elections, I think a lot of people still don't know her very well. Uh, so I think she does have the chance to to get people's attention this time around. Uh, and I think that the like the more media attention she gets, the better. Um, and because it is, as uh, lots of people are saying, a, a change election is what uh, at least a lot of people are predicting then this, you know, I mean, if, if she's ever had a chance, this is it. Right. What is the effective media strategy or media courting strategy look like for, for the parties thinking of, of Andrea Horvath and, and her team? Or you mentioned uh, to some extent about the campaign buses and the tradition of bringing on uh, press as, as the various parties do their campaign stops mm -hmm. throughout the writ period. Uh, what, what sort of thinking goes into that or how does that uh, sausage get made? I mean, I, I guess there's different there's different types of events, right? And that's what we're starting to see. I mean, the campaign is very young right now. There's the 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 big event with the press conference and the podium and the announcements. And we're seeing a lot of announcements uh, in just in the past few days. And I kind of wonder if the parties are going to be able to keep churning these out at this rate, right? Like we saw, uh, we're, we're talking on Thursday. We saw Doug Ford announce a big middle class tax cut today. We saw the premier um, announce 3,500 new nursing jobs. 
and I mean, we're we're here in the province of Ontario, as many like to say, the uh, with the largest subnational debt in the world. Um, and I mean, that's sort of a it can be construed as a, a little bit of a silly data point. But how much can these, you know, these uh, candidates that are running in an indebted province that's already running a deficit? How much can they? How much can they promise? And how how many more sort of big expensive announcements can they do? And right. I think the answer is going to be a lot. <laughs> uh, I don't expect these to stop at any point, but I think that at least well. And then in Doug Ford's case, he's made this announcement today that that he says it's going to cost two point three billion dollars per year to to give this tax cut away, um, and. He still hasn't presented uh, a costed platform. He says he's going to, but I, how many how many spending announcements can he make without telling us where the money's going to come from? Right. So that's a, that's partially answers your question. And then the other type of a, of events are the you know meet and greets, uh, go you know walk down a downtown street and and a town and and handshake. And I think those are important too. And I think. That the those are, are, the leaders need to focus, I think, a little bit more on that and, and meeting people than they do with big splashy spending announcements. Because I think it's gonna it's gonna catch up to them <laughs> at some point. We're we're gonna have some fatigue, I think, about that. Right. And so you mentioned spending and uh, policy announcements as a campaign event which you know, is a limited resource and inevitably those opportunities might or should or may ideally dry up. Is there any, can you talk to me a little bit about the kind of distinction between the media as reacting and being reactive to party-led announcements and uh, election events versus what role they have to play to um, lead election coverage on their own by you know, editorial meetings or determining they are going to look into something as a story or creating news. Um, do you get a sense that, I mean, once we get into the writ period, it's typically more party-led news events? Um, is there a role to play for the media to kind of consistently or have, if it can at all, have the resources to go out there and um, and lead some of the coverage and define the narrative and define um, and make the parties more reactive to to something that they're doing. Yeah, I mean that would be great. I would love to be reading some investigative stories on um, on what's going on behind the scenes of these campaigns. Uh, I think we saw that a little bit with the uh, coverage of some of the PC candidates, like Tanya Granick Allen. The, the CBC just did a bunch of research into Andrew Lawton, uh, who's the PC candidate in London, uh, former radio host, former rebel media host, uh, who has a long history of saying, um, let's just say bad stuff on the Internet, <laughs> unseemly stuff for a candidate. So we've seen some coverage being led there. Um, kudos to the Toronto Star for figuring out that uh, Doug Ford, that, uh, that that ad we saw from a casting company <laughs> about uh, hiring of hiring protesters or ralliers ahead of the debate, they did a, they did their homework there and they found out that that was true. So that was <laughs> that was good. That was great. Right. But I do think on a, on a day-to-day basis, yeah, it's going to be a lot of, of, of chasing the candidates around and, and seeing what they say. We have another debate on Friday, which uh, has probably already happened by the time this airs. 
So that should that should bring out some good coverage. And then after that, we don't have another debate actually until the 27th, which is right at the end of the month and right before that. So I guess yeah, here's hoping that that it doesn't get stale in between in between then and now. Right. I think some good coverage might be of um, the leaders, you know, reacting to each other a little bit more. It's always good when they're when they're in the same room. So if there can be, you know, maybe not televised debates, but some, uh, you know, second tier debates, those I think those would be useful and provide some good some good fodder. So I read recently about how ex-FBI director James Comey had an undue emphasis in his uh, investigations on Clinton leading up to the U.S. presidential election because he and I think to some degree media in the U.S. did the same thing, assumed she was naturally going to be the next president of the United States and as such deserved much more scrutiny. Do you think there are any comparisons um, that can be or should be made here um, with with Kathleen Wynne and some of the attention she's been getting from the media. Are you comparing Kathleen Wynne to Hillary Clinton? <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> I'm joking. It's a great question. Um, I personally think that that Wynne's days of really tough scrutiny might be more or less behind her. I mean, we just saw in the, the past, I mean, she's had to answer in question period to to the the opposition for years now. We just saw the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Officer come out with reports questioning her budget, questioning their accounting methods. I mean, she's been riding this storm and, and, and really um, a high level of scrutiny on her government for a long time. I think that I mean, it's almost, I think the campaign might be a little bit of a breath of fresh air for her. She gets to mm -hmm. go out and, and, and meet with people and, and, you know, it's, she definitely has her work cut out for her, but I think that the, the days of, you know, really analyzing the government's books and policies might be, they might be over. And, um, in terms of, you know, whether or not they, they should be over or shouldn't be over. Is there any role that, uh, you know, the type of things that we do here at Abacus Data, public opinion polling plays um, in defining when that cutoff starts? Is there any point in which, you know, reporters might be sitting around and thinking, well, I mean, it doesn't look like she's going anywhere, anywhere fast and um, historic, uh, historically low um, approval ratings, uh, mm -hmm. very low in the horse race. Um, is there, you know, a point where the media just decides, well, it looks like it's going to be Doug Ford. There should be maybe a bit more emphasis, or if it turns into an Andrea-Doug dogfight, does the heat kind of come off Kathleen Wynne to some extent? I mean, I think if we get to that point... Then and the narrative really spins like you know Kathleen Wynne doesn't have a chance in hell. That's that's going to be a bad a bad moment for the premier. I I think yeah if by the end of the campaign or you know close to the end, she's not up in the approval ratings at all. And, and Andrea Horvath is. Um, I think we will see that 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 turn for sure. Um, it, media coverage wise, I, I think that the scrutiny right now. And I think we might, to be honest with this, this tax announcement that we heard today, I think 
this might be kind of a breaking point from Doug Ford might be a bit of a breaking point for the media and how they intend to to cover him. I expect, you know, people to start really adding up his announcements and it's what he's said that he's going to spend and what he's promised right. and and really start looking at like how much how realistic that actually is. Um so I think that if someone, you know, because as I said off the top, that he doesn't have a cost platform, I think that the that the media's attention might be better spent uh, looking at that than, than at the government, which has provided us with, you know, I mean, lots of people are questioning the numbers and the accounting standards, but when it comes down to it, we know that they know what they're going to spend and how much things actually cost. Like, right. I think a lot of the times we saw, we saw Doug Ford's transit announcement yesterday. He promised $5 billion in new funding to build a downtown relief line in Toronto to extend the Eglinton subway in Toronto and, and you know, do all of this stuff. Or, sorry, Eglinton LRT. Um, but then we have transit uh, analysts coming out and be like, well, that's just the one uh, relief line is going to cost seven billion. So he's promising the world, but I, it's the, where the figures really aren't aren't adding up. Right, and, and I want to see this. I want to see that code that that code cracked. Right. So the the underlying kind of implication there is that to date, perhaps uh, we haven't been paying enough attention to to some of Doug Ford's promises. Do you think there there's a risk of having the sort of uh, Trump underreporting phenomenon happen where no one actually took him seriously. And then uh, come election day, we all woke up and had to be ready to, to welcome Donald Trump as the next president of the United States. I think the difference here is that, I mean, maybe this is just me. It's actually kind of become my favorite thing to say at parties in, in downtown Toronto is, that, that Doug Ford's going to win. I think it had a little bit of a bigger reaction maybe a month ago. Because, and I think it's kind of sunk into a lot of people that mm. that this might actually happen. Whereas with Donald Trump, I think people really didn't think it was going to happen. <laughs> Until it happened, yeah. Uh, so let's talk through some of the narratives of the campaign pushed by, by the parties, columnists, media, Twitter personalities um, from... You know, Doug Ford equals Donald Trump. Populism is happening in Canada. Liberals are corrupt and can't be trusted. NDP aren't experienced enough to govern. There are all these kind of high-level sticking points and meta-narratives that uh, we hold dear either about parties in general or specific leaders. Whether or not these notions are based on any fundamental truths or are simply true enough, um, how do you feel these things have been coloring our conversations about the campaign? I think all of those things are definitely true, true to a point. Um, how are they coloring the campaign? I'm unsure. I guess the Donald Trump and the, and the, the populism and the Doug Ford is an interesting one because Doug Ford and Donald Trump, or at least the, the Doug Ford that he's showing us uh, during this election campaign and in the PC leadership, isn't that much like Donald Trump, right? Like his populism is, you know, tax cuts, as we just talked about, but it's not based on necessarily racism or uh, the, the anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric like Donald Trump's was. 
that doesn't mean that his supporters um, aren't, aren't thinking that, though. Um, we saw, well, in, in Abacus's and on, and on Pulse's data, we've seen that men are much, much bigger supporters of, of uh, Doug Ford. So, I mean, there's obviously something, something there. Uh, I guess maybe we should be looking at which men, uh, I know it, it skews older, but does it skew lower income the way that some of Donald Trump's, but you know what, that, that also proved to me not true, right? That, that it wasn't only uh, low income people that voted for, for Trump. So I, I guess yes to the populism. I think I, it, maybe we have to spend more time. Maybe we should be doing those interviews like they did post uh, the, the 2016 election where they went and talked to all the people who voted for right. for Donald Trump. I mean, we should be doing some of that for Doug Ford supporters and see what it is, you know, about him and his and his rhetoric that, that's appealing to them. I would I would be reading that. Um the liberals are corrupt and can't be trusted. Well, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, that's what Kathleen Wynne really has to shake, right? I mean, that's what the the kind of the biggest line, or at least the line that got under her skin during the the first leadership debate was Don, was Doug Ford, sorry, saying, "When did you lose your way?" Like, I believe you got into government for the right reasons, but when did you, did you lose your way? And and Wynne brought that up repeatedly the next day. Right. So I think that that's what she's going to be spending her campaign trying to do is, you know, trying to get people to like and trust her again, um, which she they did. Right. They voted her in with a majority government four years ago. So can can she shake that? I, I'm not sure. Um, and the NDP aren't experienced enough to govern. Well, I mean, Andrew Horvath's been a leader for a long time. I don't. Think, and, and it, you know what, and it's experienced. I think she is experienced. I think what we see sometimes with, you know, NDP policy or communications being like a little bit sloppy has to do with a lack of resources, right? When you're in government, you have hundreds or thousands of civil servants working underneath you that can put together really nice looking budget documents and uh, analyze things very well, whereas the when you're in opposition, you don't have that, right? You're paying for everything yourself. You have you have less staff. So I, I think that the NDP probably are experienced enough to govern, but you can hear me kind of <laughs> gritting my teeth there. But if anything, Andrea Horvath is much more experienced than Doug Ford in the provincial uh, in the provincial government, that's for sure. Right. And do you feel, uh, I mean, whether or not these kind of frames are true, they're they actively, uh, you know, as much as we try to be objective, they actively do kind of color the media, the way the, the media frames conversations or the way they, they, they research or sell their stories to the general public, the way they talk about these things. Do they, uh, do they have this way of creeping in and influencing the type of coverage that we end up seeing and, and reinforcing this echo chamber of, of uh, framing effect? I guess it depends what media you're reading. I think that if you're Mostly reading... Mostly the, the Rebel, exclusively. That's, yes. <laughs> okay, yes. You don't even have to read that. You can just watch it. They, they, you can just <laughs> feel it. You can feel it in your gut. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that there's a lot of uh, op-eds that will tell you all of these things, but I think that the general journalism coming out of the Queen's Park Press Gallery, where 
you know, all of us reporters know, at least Andrea and, and Kathleen very well, uh, that I don't think that the, 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 that coverage is necessarily uh, in there and, you know, in the hard news stories. Um, Doug Ford, I mean, I think what I'm finding with, with having to cover him and, and the other media are doing that is, <laughs> and I mean, you always should check what the government says or what any political party tells you before you, you read it or tweet it or write it. But with a lot of his announcements, I mean, we have to really just be like, okay, wait, like this doesn't add up immediately. <laughs> like when he was, he was talking about the, uh, oh, so inside baseball, but about when Hydro One is going, is trying to acquire this company called Avista in the States. And his, uh, his team uncovered these, uh, golden parachute deals that the that the CEOs of Vista would get if the company was acquired. And right. He held a press conference to talk about how it's going to cost taxpayers billions or millions of dollars to pay out these CEOs. And it just turned out that none of that had, you know, held water at all. It was the, the document he provided was true, uh, but it was a deal like their contract was 10 years old and it wouldn't taxpayers wouldn't be paying for it anyways. So I think that we're having to like really step back and be like, okay, wait, like, are you actually telling us something that is true or matters at all? Um, whereas with the other leaders, that's not so much the case. And we don't have, you know, Kathleen Wynne and the, and the liberals coming out and telling us something that's just, you know, kind of, kind of crazy that can be immediately disproven. Right. So we are getting uh, close to time. Before I let you go, um, mm -hmm. most chaotic election campaign you've ever covered? I don't know. This one's barely started, but even the lead up has been pretty crazy, hasn't it? I, you know what? Why not the PC leadership campaign? That's not an election campaign, but damn, was that quite the convention? <laughs> I, th I think we could accept that as an answer. <laughs> that was Allison Smith of Queen's Park today. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark.